What a great truth. Go ahead and grab a seat. It's amazing to be with you today singing those truths that we no longer have to live in slavery to fear, uh, but we are children of God, sons and daughters of God Most High through His grace, through all that Jesus has done for us. And what a, what a great truth. It's so fun to be on this journey with you, Overlake. I love you. My name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors on the team. And uh, I want to invite you to grab your notes out of your handout. We're launching into a new series today. It's going to take us all the way to Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. The, the series is called Only Jesus. And, and, and the reason why we want to go on this journey together is because today in our culture, it's amazing at how well-respected Jesus actually is, how uh, Jesus is uh, kind of fairly highly thought of as a great teacher or as a moral philosopher, uh, even a spiritual leader. That, that in, in, in our world today, in our culture today, it, it's quite an okay thing to like Jesus, but it's a little bit of a fearful thing to love Jesus. Uh, it's a little bit of a fearful thing to actually understand what it was that Jesus thought about himself what it was that he taught, what, what it was, the unique position that Jesus was in as he sought to accomplish the purpose that God sent him to earth to accomplish. And, and we'll recognize as we go through this series that only Jesus could fill this role. That this isn't one role like all religious teachers do. This isn't a role like all good people do. No, no. This was a position that only Jesus could fill. This was uh, the accomplishment that only Jesus could accomplish. So that's what we're going to uh, jump into. That's why we're going to be on this journey as we go toward Easter. So I'd love to have you guys join us. I'd even love it if you'd be thinking about who you might invite with you to join you on this journey as we march toward Easter. So as we get into this, and as you read in the scripture in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll realize a couple of things about Jesus. Jesus was incredibly popular. That's, that's something. Jesus was infuriating to many, that he was a conundrum, uh, that he was winsome, that he was dynamic, that he was never boring. Everyone was on the edge of their seat as they waited to see what was the next thing this guy was going to come, uh, you know, kind of pull out of his, his bag. And, and so there was all kinds of stuff going on about Jesus. And, and what I want to do is, is I want to to unpack a little bit about the culture that he arrived in. Because in some ways, it's a lot like the culture today. Jesus, when he arrived in the first century Israel, he entered into a very religious culture. It was ultra-ritualistic, highly legalistic. Now, as, as I say that, some of you immediately, you're thinking, well, that's not like our culture today. Except for the fact that you recognize we get legalistic about everything today, just not religion. Like we are religious about everything that has nothing to do with religion. Um, some of you are religious about going to the gym. Some of you are religious, like, like incredibly religious about whatever political ideology you hold to. 
Some of you are religious about, um, you, you know, your diet plan or whatever it is. Like, we get seriously, some of you are like the most intolerant people in the world about tolerance. Like, there's this incredible uh, juxtaposition of how religion and the religious spirit has infiltrated our culture today. Well, it was so alive in the day when Jesus arrived on the scene. People, and for them, it really was religion. They, were, they built this incredible, intense system of ritual around God's heart and God's commands. So I'll just give you one example real quick. God says, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And the reason why God says that, it's actually a gift to his children. It's a gift to humans because one day a week, he's saying, look, don't work. You're killing yourself six days a week. On the seventh day, I want you to rest. And I want you to use that time to connect with me and worship. I want, to use, I want you to use that time to connect with your family and friends. Be rejuvenated. Be refreshed. Be replenished so that the next day you can go out, start the week, you can work hard again. And, and so that's, that's God's desire. That's his command. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Well, in Jesus' day, they had taken that command and the Pharisees and the religious leaders, the teachers of his day, they had added hundreds of caveats to that law. And they had really unpacked what it meant to remember the Sabbath and what it meant to keep it holy and what it meant to do no work on the Sabbath. And, and so they parsed it out and they talked about how far you could walk on the Sabbath, not far, and how much you could carry on the Sabbath, not much. And, and they would even describe it to this kind of a detail that if you walked a certain amount of steps on the Sabbath and you had a little bit of straw stuck in your beard accidentally, which happens to me all the time, then you would be, you'd break the Sabbath. You would be accused of breaking the commandment of God. I mean, talk about an adventure and missing the point. Now, just so we're a little bit clear, I've been to Israel a couple of different times. Just this incredible spiritual journey that God's allowed me to be on. And, but here's the deal. If you're in Israel today, and it's the Sabbath, the Shabbat they call it. If you're there on the Sabbath in a hotel, the elevators in the hotel will stop at every floor. And the reason why they're programmed to stop at every floor, because they don't want to make anybody press a button because pressing a button on the Sabbath constitutes work, and they don't want to break the Sabbath by working. Are you following this? You find it just a tad bit odd? Like, that's what God wants is for no elevator button pushing? Like, and, and yet, right, the scenario when Jesus enters in, that's how religious everyone was. And the more rules and the more laws and the more caveats that could be piled on, they were considered the more religious. So the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they were at the very top of this religious hierarchy because they're the ones who knew it all. And so Jesus comes in, and this is what he says. He says in Matthew 5.20, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh my goodness. What Jesus is saying right here is, look, the righteousness of the Pharisees isn't righteousness. They're missing what's going on here. And then in Matthew 5, he goes on, this is the most incredible sermon ever preached. He goes on and he talks about 
murder. There's this command, he says, about murder. God doesn't want you to murder. That's not for God's people. That misses, misses the mark, he says. That's a sin. So you've heard it said, don't murder. But I tell you, if your heart is filled with anger, rage, bitterness, resentment, then you've got a murderous heart, he says. And God cares about that just as much as you not committing murder. And then he goes on, he says, you've heard about adultery, don't, don't commit adultery, you've heard it said. It's a good law, don't commit adultery. God doesn't want adultery for his people, Jesus says. But listen, what about your heart? When you've got a heart that's filled with lust and greed, when you've got a heart that's filled with covetousness, reducing people down just to the object of your desire, he says, then you've got an adulterous heart. And God cares about that just the same. And, and so what Jesus is saying is, look, you have got to have a righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They think they're righteous, but they're missing it. He's saying, if, if you're looking at the Pharisees and thinking, man, if I could just hit that bar of righteousness, he's like, that's you saying, I wish I had a wardrobe like Pastor Mike. He says, you gotta set your sights a little higher than that, right? Like, you've gotta go for something a little bit more radical. And so here's, here's what Jesus is coming to say, and this is pretty radical. He says... Religious people are missing out on God's kingdom. Religious people are missing out on God's kingdom. I found this quote. It says, if you are weary of some sleepy form of devotion, probably God is as weary of it as you are. Right? And, and, and so if you're bored in your faith journey, so is the Lord, like, th this recognition of ritual perfection, this recognition of, of religion and legalism and trying to do everything perfectly, trying to earn God's love, but you're ignoring your heart. Jesus is saying you're, you're missing God's heart. You're, you're missing out on, on responding to and reflecting God's love. And so what Jesus was interested in, and over like this is what we're interested in, we keep coming back to this, is Jesus is saying, do you love God? Do you love one another? Do you love people? And are you ready to serve the world? These are the things that motivate Christ's heart. They motivate his teaching. They, they certainly motivate his, his action and, and the reason why he came in the first place. Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees. Here's the irony of Jesus' day. It's this. You're filling in the blanks. The religious were more damaged by their toxic righteousness than sinners were by their broken sinfulness. And if you doubt that, I recognize that's shocking to some of you that the religious, they were more damaged by their toxic legalism than sinners were by their brokenness. And, and yet, what does Jesus say? Jesus says, look, I'm telling you, the sinners and the prostitutes and the tax collectors are gonna enter the kingdom before you teachers and preachers and religious leaders. He said, they're getting it, but you're missing it. You're missing God's heart. And, and I just wanna say to you today, if, if you've ever spent any time, personally, if you have ever spent any time pursuing a framework that's it's very legalistic, and I know some of you have. I talked to some after the last service. If you sort of reckon your worth by how many devotions you've done this week, how many prayers you prayed, if you're checking off this kind of spiritual checklist, and, and that's how you reckon yourself before God, then you probably don't need me to talk about how empty that kind of life can become. 
how dry and brittle that kind of religious experience can be. And it's in the midst of that that Jesus comes crashing in. And what I want to do is I want to take a look at a passage of scripture about a man who is very religious. In fact, he is the religious elite. He's a Pharisee. His name is Nicodemus. Find this in in the book of John. This is in chapter 3. And if you want to open your Bibles to that, you're, you're very welcome. It'll be on the screen. It's on your notes as well. But Nicodemus is prompted to come visit Jesus after dark. He's prompted to kind of visit him in the secrecy of night. This is the first ever episode of Nick at Night. You're welcome. And, and, and probably, it, <laughs> come back to me, come on, come on. Probably the reason why Nicodemus comes at night is because he doesn't want the other Pharisees to see him. Because he's a Pharisee and he's a part of this, this movement of Pharisees. They're the ones who are in charge religiously. Jesus is coming on the scene. He's turning over the apple cart. Everybody doesn't know what to do with Jesus. But Nicodemus is curious and he's intrigued. And so he wants to go have a, a, a face-to-face with Jesus. But he doesn't want his, his buddies, the Pharisees, to see. So he comes at night. And this is, this is what he says. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. So what's interesting about this is Nicodemus is coming. He's curious. He's intrigued. He comes to Jesus at night. He says to him, we know you're from God. What's really interesting about that statement is what he probably means is, I know you're from God. Because this was by no means the collective Pharisee opinion about Jesus. In fact, some of them thought he was from the devil. But when he says, we know you're from God, he's probably speaking personally to Jesus. Jesus, I know you're from God. That's why I've come to visit you. I'm intrigued by you. I want want to explore what's going on because I can tell something's going on. And then he says, Nobody could do the miraculous signs that you do unless they were from God. There's this, there's this recognition that the miracles that Jesus was doing, the way that he was healing people, the way that, that sight was being restored to the blind, that, that, that those oppressed by, by demons were being set free and liberated. Uh, Nicodemus is recognizing these are miraculous signs. By the way, when Jesus was doing these things, he was announcing the kingdom of God. Everything we see in scripture, there's not a single accident that Jesus did. The way that he healed, the way that he taught, the way that he set people free, all of this was the announcement of God's kingdom come. It was the way the world was made in the beginning. If you look at creation, that's the reign and rule of the Lord over creation before the fall, before sin entered the world. If you look to the end, you look at what heaven's going to be like, all perfectly ordered under the authority of Jesus as king. You recognize Jesus was announcing and heralding the kingdom come. That's what Nicodemus is saying. We know you're from God. I know you're from God. But you notice Nicodemus doesn't ask a question. He just makes a statement. This is a proclamation. I know you're from God. But when Jesus responds, Jesus answers a question. It's the unspoken question of Nicodemus. Maybe it's the unspoken question on your heart today. It's this question, how can I get in on the kingdom? You see, Nicodemus is recognizing, you know what? My legalistic, my religious framework, all my hard work trying to earn God's approval, 
It's leaving me empty. I wonder if I could somehow get in on God's kingdom. Because that's the question that Jesus answers. Look what Jesus says. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. So how can I get in the kingdom? You can tell that that's kind of kicking around in Nicodemus' heart. Jesus answers, you want to see the kingdom? You need to be born again. You have to be born from above, born of the spirit, new life, new heart. This idea of, of the spirit giving birth to our spirit. The old has passed away, the new has come. And then Nicodemus says this, John 3, 4. How can a man be born when he's old? Like he doesn't understand what Jesus is saying. How can he be born when he's old, Nicodemus asks. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. This is my vote for the dumbest comment in the world. <laughs> if, I, if I was Jesus, I would have gone, Nick, that's sick. And don't call me Shirley. Like, uh, I, of course, it, it doesn't make sense. You can tell Nicodemus doesn't understand what Jesus is saying, so he asks a, a silly question, and, 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 and yet we don't really understand it, right? What, is it, what does this mean, born again? Hey, what, what is Jesus talking about here? So Jesus answers. I tell you the truth, he says, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. Now you can see what he's saying here. He's saying that there are two kinds of birth. There is a physical birth. That's what he's referring to when he talks about being born of water, flesh giving birth to flesh. And then there's a spiritual birth, he says, and that's what, when the spirit gives birth to spirit, our spirit. And so what I want you to think about for just one second is I want you to think about, I mean imagine, you have to imagine this. Uh, I want you to imagine what your role was in your own physical birth. Right? And, and I said you have to imagine it because I don't think any of you can remember. And if you can remember, please do not talk to me about it. But when you imagine your role in your own physical birth, it's like not that much. I mean, I was hanging out. It was warm. It was dark. All of a sudden, it's light. It's cold. Some guy in gloves slaps me. I cry. I, I didn't do a whole lot in my own physical birth. In fact, if you were going to actually write out what was the role that we played in our own physical birth, the answer is we simply submitted to the pushing of a higher power. That's all it was. We submitted to a pushing, a prompting. We didn't do anything. We just let something happen to us. And so in the same way, I'm going to say, our role in our spiritual birth is that we submit to the pushing of a higher power. That we allow the spirit of God to propel us forward. We allow God to do the work he wants to do inside of our hearts. We allow him to move us forward. And what's funny to me is that in this passage, Jesus marries these two concepts of water and of new birth. right? And that's not the only time. Many times in scripture, we see this connection between water and new birth. In fact, in Ezekiel 36, we read these, this. This is from God. He's speaking over his people. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. 
I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Please look at that passage for a moment. And notice who is accomplishing all of the action verbs in that passage. It's God. God's saying, I'll do this for you. I'm going to cleanse you with water. I'm going to cleanse you of your impurities. I'm going to remove this love of idolatry. I, I'm, I'm going to do all this. I'm going to surgically remove the heart of stone. I'm going to give you a new heart, this new birth, this new life. It's all my doing. It's a heavy lifting, God says. And what's our role? We simply allow him to do his work. Right? We, we just submit to his prompting. And this marrying, I think it's so interesting, the marrying of water and of new birth. And that's one of the reasons why we do baptisms at Overlake. By the way, we're doing baptisms next Sunday. It's just an incredible opportunity. I'm so, so pleased that all the folks that have joined us for baptisms, if you've not taken that step, please consider taking that step next Sunday. But it's that great way to, to marry this concept of water and new life. And if you look at Romans chapter 6, you'll read in that chapter how the Apostle Paul connects these things. Talking about how baptism really connects us with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How we bury the old life, the without God life. And we live this new life empowered by God's spirit. That's new birth. That's the born again that Jesus is talking about. Okay, so what we see is that God does the heavy lifting. Look at this verse in Titus, chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. It says, he saved us, talking about God. God saved us, not because of the righteous things we've done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So again, it's, he's doing the heavy lifting. He's going to wash us. He's going to, to give us rebirth, right? He's going to give us renewal by his Holy Spirit, poured out on us because of Jesus Christ. This is that new birth, that born again. And it's all because of, of God's Spirit, not because of what we've done. Can we earn this by our own righteousness? The verse is no. It's not because of our righteousness. It's because of God's mercy. So we see these themes all the way through the scripture. And so you might be at this point saying, well, thank you, Jesus. Thanks for doing the heavy lifting. Now it's so clear. I know exactly what I have to do or what I don't have to do. Actually, I'm quite confused. What do I do? Uh, what don't I do? And so what I want to do, and this sort of want to bring is today, just, just consider that maybe it's not the 12 happy hops to heaven. Maybe it's not the eightfold path to righteousness. It's not the do these things, you know, if you wash this way and talk this way. Like, like that's not what Jesus is going after here. What, what he's going after is, look, there is a role that you play, but it actually is it's the role of submitting. Because all of the heavy lifting is going to be done by the Holy Spirit of God. All the heavy lifting is going to be done by the work that I accomplish on the cross. All the heavy lifting is going to be done by the love that our Father has. So completely he loves us that he will not rest until he, he's able to do his work inside of our hearts. So, so, so that's kind of what I want to go after. Maybe the key for us is simply to allow ourselves to be pushed and prompted and propelled by a higher power. 
And the key word, if you want to write it down somewhere, is, is the word submit. Submit. I, I asked this question in the first service. I'd love to know uh, today in this service. How many of you have a toddler in your home right now? Anybody? Any hands up? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So you guys are the ones that need an extra two hours of sleep. Um, sorry about next week, by the way. The, the, the time change? Yeah, you're welcome on that one. So it's been a few years since we've had toddlers in our home. And, um, but I do remember distinctly my son, Caleb, my middle child, high, high energy, Caleb, high volume, Caleb. I remember uh, my wife occasionally would say, hey, honey, why don't you go upstairs and get Caleb dressed and ready for the day? So I'd go up into his room and I'd, and I'd try to get this little squirmer dressed. And he would move and juke, and, and he, would, he would wiggle like a worm on cocaine. And, and I would be there, you know, and I'd be trying to get his pants on, and suddenly they both legs are in one pant leg, and, and, and suddenly, like, his head's in the armhole and all that. And I'd be, like, just wrangling him down, finally going, just submit, right? Stop fighting, I'd say. If, if you don't stand still, so help me. I'm going to get your mom and... <laughs> but you get, I was ready to do all the hard work for him, right? Like I was, I, you know, I provided the clothing and I was ready to get him clothed. And, and yet he, all he had to do was just kind of cooperate. Do, are, you, are you tracking with me? And, and I wonder sometimes if that's not how it is spiritually with us. That God's the one who's done everything. He's done everything. His love, so lavish. His grace, so extensive. It's unending, unfailing. God's like, look, I'll take care of everything. Just let me clothe you in my righteousness. Just let me take your sin from you. Just allow me to, to, to cover you with my grace and my love. And, and we're the ones fighting him. We're the ones saying, no, I know how to do it. I do my own clothes. I'll, I'll figure this out on my own. He's like, just submit. You see, I, I want you to understand that this idea of dressing yourself, that's a really good definition of what religion is. Providing your own clothing. We've been trying to do this from the beginning. And again, I, I just want to go back. Humans are trying it today through working out. And workout programs or diet programs or, or political philosophies or, uh, you, you know, all kinds of stuff. The, uh, accomplishments at work or w whatever it is. Like, we're, we're trying to earn our own righteousness, prop ourselves up. I'll clothe myself, God. You know, it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. If you're familiar with that story, you know, they chose to disobey God. They chose to go their own path and... It was perfect. It was ideal. They had this intimacy with, with their creator, their father, God. And, and they chose disobedience. And when they did, instantly something happened. The Bible tells us they were naked and unashamed. They, they, they had no idea what shame was. They had no idea what sin was. No idea what guilt was. They didn't know what their own nakedness was. And suddenly after their disobedience, they knew nakedness and they knew their shame. And so they tried to cover up. They provided their own clothing. If you're familiar with that story, God has a conversation with them. He sees them. What they've done is they've taken vines and leaves and they've tied them around their body to try to cover their nakedness. And God says, what are you doing? That looks so uncomfortable. I'm pretty sure that's poison ivy. Uh, God says, what are you doing? They said, we were afraid 
because we were naked, and so we hid. We covered. And God says, look, this is going to cost me, but I will clothe you. And the plan of salvation started to unroll right then. And God knew what he was going to do. And so I just want you to understand, Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must allow the Holy Spirit to give birth to your spirit. And the Greek word, by the way, that Jesus uses for spirit is the same word as the word for wind. And so immediately, Jesus is going to go into a little play on words here. He says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. You know, what I imagine is going on in this, in this moment right here is Jesus is saying, look, feel the wind on your face. And when you feel the wind on your face, you know, the best thing to do is to throw up your sail and to let the wind carry you forward. That's the best thing to do. Don't try to control it. Don't try to harness it. Simply allow it to propel you forward. And Nicodemus doesn't exactly understand Jesus' answer because it's not a religious answer. And, and so he asks, how can this be? How can I get in on this thing? So Jesus begins to give a history lesson. And that's the, the best thing I can tell you is that Nicodemus was a truly an expert in the law. So when Jesus makes this reference all the way back to Numbers, it's the fourth book in the Bible, Numbers 21. When Jesus makes this reference to Numbers 21, he knew Nicodemus would get it instantly. Okay, it's going to take us a little bit of time to unpack, but he says this, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so must the son of man, he's talking about himself here, so must the son of man be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Okay, so let's, let's just answer this question. What's Jesus referring to? Moses lifting up the snake in the wilderness. I grew up, by the way, in Sunday school. And we would, all, we would sing a song, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so my son of man be lifted. I, I never knew what that song was about. Uh, I always thought it was like a zoological kind of a uh, reference or something. I d didn't realize biology was going to be required. But um, it, it's not that. So, so let me unpack this. Numbers 21, Nicodemus would have gotten instantly. But Numbers 21, is, it's, it's part of the story where the Israelites had been liberated from slavery in Egypt. God was leading them into the promised land. But as they were traveling into the promised land, they had to go through the desert. And in the desert, they began to whine and grumble and complain. It was tough. And, and God provided water for them. And God provided manna from heaven. It was like bread from heaven for them. And, and, but they, they were tired. They were complaining. And they started to reminisce about the good old days in Egypt in slavery. Okay? And, and so um, basically this is what's going on as they begin to complain. They were saying something like this. We're tired, scared, and God, thanks for the bread from heaven, but we're tired of this heavenly bread. Take us back to Egypt. What we're really missing is some slavery. We choose bondage and toil over freedom with our God. Moses seems lost and won't stop to ask for directions. Life with God is an adventure, but we thought adventures were all rosy and fun. This adventure is dusty and hard and requires us to trust. And we've seen miracle after miracle and victory after victory. But we miss our chains. That's my paraphrase, by the way. 
And so in the midst of that whining and complaining and grumbling against God, against Moses, their leader, uh, there's suddenly snakes uh, invade their camp and begin to bite them. And God allows this, that these snakes bite these Israelites who are grumbling and complaining, and they're poisonous snakes, and so many Israelites begin to die. Now, I know that sounds incredibly harsh, but you do have to realize that from God's perspective, death is like an upgrade, okay? Uh, it's, it's God's way of saying, why don't you come here and let's have a little face-to-face chat? That's, that's what's going on. And so, so, so instantly the Israelites have the attention of God. Their, their grumbling has stopped, and they begin to ask Moses, hey, Moses, you need to intercede on our behalf. So this is what, what happens. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Now check this out. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. So I want you to envision this. So Moses intercedes, God relents. God says, what I want you to do is I want you to make a snake. Make a, you know, create an image of a snake, a symbol of a snake. And so Moses does, it's out of bronze. And then lift it, God says, lift it high so that everyone in the camp can see it when they look to it. And if someone's bitten, the snake is the problem, God says. So the snake will be the salvation. And we're going to lift the snake high, and anyone who is bitten by a snake can simply look at this snake lifted high, and the poison will be drawn from their veins, and they'll be safe. And in the same way, Jesus is saying, man has chosen sin. Man has fallen. And through one man's fall, sin enters the world, it says in Romans. And through one man lifted high, that's Jesus. Salvation is offered so that anyone whose soul is infected with sin, which, by the way, that's all of us, when we choose to look to the one who's lifted high, when we look at Jesus on the cross of Calvary, the sin that is in our souls that is infecting us unto death, that sin will be drawn from our veins and we'll be saved. That's why Jesus says this in John 12, 32, and I... When I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus is saying, look, I'm the cure for the sin sickness that infects all of humanity. John 1.12 says this. Yet to all who received him, referring to Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of a human desire or a husband's will, but born of God. You might want to circle that last phrase, born of God. You see, if, if we believe in Jesus, we receive his gift, we are born of God. This is not religion, friends. This is what God wants to do through the spirit of God blowing through the course of our life, changing us from the inside out. And all that's required is that we would submit to him. Let him chart the course of our destiny. And you know what's funny to me? There, there, there could have been kind of a scientific-minded, little, maybe slightly more cynical Israelite 
who when Moses maps out the plan, hey, this is the plan God told me. I made this bronze snake. I'm going to lift it high in a pole. All you have to do is look at it when you get bid. And, and, and there could be, you know, this Israelite just argues with that. There's no way that's going to work. By the way, Moses, that's not medically sound at all. And, and you know, it's not scientific. And, and I, I could be wrong, but Moses, that doesn't even sound religious to me. Like, there's nothing about this scenario that is going to work whatsoever, and they could argue with Moses until they die. And in the same way, somebody could argue with Jesus. No, there's no way that Jesus lifted high on a cross can impact my life today. There's no way that Jesus, beaten and crucified, nails driven through his hands, a crown of thorns thrust upon his head. There's no way that that event that happened 2,000 years ago would have any transformative effect on my life today. And you could argue that way until the sin sickness takes hold and you die. You see, it, it, it's just one of those things that you have to step into by faith and you have to allow the spirit of God to blow and, and you have to feel the wind of his presence on your face and, and allow him, right, submit to the pushing of a higher power. That's what's required. And then Jesus says this, and, and I want to just reaffirm. He says this verse. It's the most famous verse that he ever said. But he says it to a Pharisee named Nicodemus who comes to visit him at night. He says this. He says, for God so loved, right? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. And the word that I want you to circle in that passage is simply the word only, only, his only son. You see, Jesus knew exactly who he was, and he knew exactly what he came to do. He came to provide salvation for the sin sickness that affects all of us. And what we do is we simply look to him and we believe in him, and for those who believe in him and submit to the prompting of his spirit, we will not perish, but we'll have eternal life. We'll get the kingdom. That's the promise that Jesus makes to Nicodemus. That's the promise that he makes to you and I. He says, you must be born again. He says, I came to save. I'm here on a rescue mission. I didn't come to condemn. I came to save. That's what God says. And it's only through Jesus that this happens. And it brings us all to these truths. Uh, if you're filling in the blanks, it's this. That good people don't get God's kingdom. It's not about how good you are. It's not about how much you accomplish. It's not about earning your place in God's society. It's not about, um, you know, being polite. It's not about, you know, nicety. Um, it's not about being religious at all. It's not that at the end of the day, if you're gooder than you are badder, you'll somehow make it into God's kingdom. No, no, it's, it's good people don't get in on God's kingdom, but forgiven people do. Forgiven people do. Graced people do. People who understand that it's not about what we can do. It's not about what we can earn, but it's simply that we've submitted to the pushing of a higher power. Simply allowing Jesus to provide the antidote for the sin sickness that affects us. Allowing ourselves to be born again. And you know what the ultimate irony is in all this? That Jesus was talking about being born again. It was 
as the antidote to the problem of religion. And the irony is that today, born again has become a religious term. Born again is a voting block. That's never what Jesus had in mind. And so I'm going to give you a few uh, verbs right now. And I'd love to have you write these verbs down. I'd love to have you wrestle with these verbs. I'd love to have you kind of think and pray over this this week. As you recognize it's only Jesus who provides this kind of grace, this kind of love, this kind of salvation, this kingdom. And he says, uh, or, or just write this down. Instead of religion, I would encourage you to accept the love of God who is in love with you. Accept the love of God who's in love with you. Accept his love today. That you would submit to him clothing you in the garments of his son. Allow him to provide the righteousness that you and I need. Release your anxiety and embrace his provision for you and over your life. You release your fears, no longer a slave to fear. That you would relax in his grace. That you just lean back in it, let him carry and support you. That you would rejoice in his presence. That there's joy as we draw near to the Lord. And that you would surrender your will to his. Surrender your will to his. Now today, I know that God's spirit is blowing through hearts. I know that God's spirit is blowing through lives. And I want you to see that God's spirit was blowing through Nicodemus. That it was what propelled him to come visit Jesus at night. It's what prompted Nicodemus to stand up in front of the Sanhedrin, the religious ruling court, and actually speak up for Jesus. It was what motivated Nicodemus to come to the cross where Jesus was crucified with 80 pounds of burial spices so that he could honor Jesus. You see, I believe that Nicodemus had seen Jesus lifted high and exalted. That Nicodemus had experienced that, that, that spirit, that wind of God's spirit, and that he had been born again. I believe Nicodemus got in on God's kingdom. But the question I have is, have you? Ha have you allowed the spirit of God to propel your life? Have you submitted to the work that he wants to accomplish within you? See, maybe for you today, the, the, the spirit is blowing and, and you're being prompted to simply believe in Jesus today and to receive the gift of his grace. That's a great place to start. Maybe for you, there's a, there is an area of your life that the spirit is calling you to submit. You know it's outside of the realm of God's desire for you and and the Spirit is saying, that's what you need to submit. That's what you need to lay down. Maybe for others of you, you've been following Jesus, but you've never taken that step to publicly proclaim your faith. And so baptism is the next step for you. Maybe for you, you know that this month is going to be one of the most opportune months to invite a friend to join you on your spiritual journey. Bring him to church. Bring him to Easter. Maybe the Spirit's calling you to invite. See, I don't know what the Spirit is prompting you to do today. I simply know that the wind of God's Spirit is blowing. It's up to us to submit ourselves to Him and to allow Him to chart the course for us. So why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes, and let's just tell Him that we're going to do that. Holy Spirit, we do pray that you would blow powerfully through our lives. We know that we cannot force this work 
of being born again, so we simply submit to you. We know that you love each and every one of us. We know that you have incredible designs for our lives, designs that lead us into the fullness of life and health and vitality and abundance, but also that lead to the glory of God and the kingdom of God coming here. And we just want to be a part of whatever it is that you're calling us to. We want to be born of you. And so would you just blow powerfully through our lives, allow us to know you, allow us to submit to you, allow us to walk in intimacy with you. And Jesus, we do just want to say thank you for your salvation. Thank you for paying the price, the penalty of sin, so that we might be cleansed, forgiven, so that the poison of sin sickness could be drawn from our veins, and we might live intimately, we might live healthy in your kingdom. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.